You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Annette Liebeskin Berkowitz. Annette grew up in post-war Poland and the fledgling state of Israel before coming to America at the age of 16. Despite being uprooted from country to country, Annette has channeled her passions into writing and has published two memoirs, short stories, and some poetry. She joins me today to discuss her latest memoir, Aftermath, Coming of Age on Three Continents. Well, welcome to Uncorking a Story, Annette. It's a pleasure to be with you, Mike. I am so happy to have you here. And I have to ask you the question I ask everybody to kick us off, which is, Annette, where does your story begin? My story begins at the foothills of the Himalayas in the Fergana Valley that was strewn with fields of red poppies, which is my earliest memory. That is a very uh, descriptive, uh, <laughs> that's very descriptive there. Uh, well, tell me, what, what was it like growing up there? Well, I left when I was a little girl, but I have uh, a, a really vivid memory of it. Uh, for me, uh, it, it's a wonderful memory. Uh, I even remember um, standing in a crib in a peach orchard uh, as a little tot, trying to reach every peach and nicking each one of them with my two front teeth. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, my parents were very fortunate. They uh, had uh, survived Soviet gulags, and they went as when they were released from the gulags. Uh, war was still raging on the west, so they couldn't go back home to Poland. So they went as far south as they could, and uh, the Himalayas were too formidable for them to cross. So they they were there. But it was the Soviet government, and their lives were extremely difficult. Of course, as a young child, I was unaware of it. Mm -hmm. uh, when the war was over, 
um, all they wanted to do was to get back to Poland, uh, where they came from. They were each from different cities in Poland. My mother uh, was born in Warsaw, the capital, and my father in Łódź, which was the central, large, second largest city in Poland. They wanted to get back and look for their relatives, but when we got there, no, no one was left, and uh, doors slammed, and we couldn't leave. So I grew up in Poland for the first ten years. Wow, wow! So they they had a contend with Hitler on one side and Stalin on the other. Exactly. Yeah, with with no home. Right, and yet in a perverse kind of twist of history. Because they escaped from Poland to the Soviet Union, their lives were saved. They would have been murdered with the rest of their families had they not escaped. My father, especially in 1939, uh, September 1st, 1939, when the Nazis invaded Poland, my father knew right away that the German military would be different. He had experienced uh, German military when he was a little boy, he was a five-year-old during uh, the First World War. Mm. And and the German soldiers that he ran into in Poland were very nice to him. But when he heard what was happening uh, in, in September when the Nazis came in and the way they flew the planes low and they were just mowing people down as, as though they were grass, he said, this is going to be different. I'm going to leave. And he tried to persuade all his siblings uh, to go with him. And they thought he was crazy crossing the river where the two opposing militaries, the Nazis on one side and the Soviets on the other, shooting at each other, trying to swallow up Poland. And uh, he did escape. My mother escaped in a similar way. They did not know one another at the time. And so they ended up being uh, arrested and rounded up because they didn't choose uh, Soviet citizenship when they came to the Soviet Union. So um, my father was sentenced to hard labor way, way north of Moscow, um, very, very cold, forbidding terrain. It's impenetrable forests where you cannot escape because you would not survive. And my mother was sentenced uh, to Siberia. So they each had a, a, a very rough time. But miraculously, there was a pact between the Polish government in London and Polish government in exile in London and Stalin to release the Polish prisoners with the hope that they would go and fight on the Soviet side. <laughs> and those that survived and many thousands died of uh, starvation, uh, mostly starvation and disease. Um, um, well, they they managed to survive. So that's that's how they were saved. Their lives were saved. Yeah. So when you when you got to Poland with with your family, what paint a picture for me of of what it was like there? It sounds like there was there was no f extended family left. There was no family left, and and I'm I'm glad you asked me this question because. I'll tell you a story that sounds like so amazingly difficult that people think it, it's it's like improbable. But my mother was nine months pregnant when we trekked from Kyrgyzstan to Poland and we traveled by cattle train 
where my parents slept on the floor of the cattle car. And I remember it very, very vividly because the train stopped constantly. The, it, it was not a direct route. It took, uh, I think, about two months for us to make that trip in this um, cattle car. And every time it stopped, my father, I remember my father hopping off the train, taking a sort of a dented teapot and putting it under the locomotive to catch the dripping, uh, the steam, yeah. have warm water. So my mother, my mother washed me with that water. Uh, and, 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 and she was very pregnant during that trip. And on the first night when we arrived, um, we arrived, uh, oddly enough, in Auschwitz, which in Polish is called Oświęcim, and it's the place where the gauge of the train tracks changes. So to get on a passenger train, you have to wait for another train. Now, my father carried with us a big sack of salt because that was the only thing he had. He thought for some reason that it had value. That was his only possession. But the sack of salt was too big to get on a passenger train. They wouldn't allow him on the passenger train. So he instructed my mother to take me. I was just under three and to go to the city that he came from because he heard via the survivor grapevine that his sister who was an Auschwitz survivor was in the city of Łódź. So my mother had never met her because they married in Kyrgyzstan. And he said, go, she will take care of you and, and you'll be okay. So he managed to put my mother and me on the train. And when we arrived, there was curfew. The Soviets had imposed a curfew. So my mother and I were walking through the streets. She was trying to find the address. She didn't know that city. She had never been there. Of course, no transportation. She was walking. And I was a little kid. And I remember this. I insisted on being carried. And, you know, my mother wasn't, she, she weighed 90 pounds. She was so emaciated because they were so starved in the Soviet Union. And um, some, uh, we, it got dark and we passed by a guardhouse that was guarded by a Soviet military woman. And I remember her because she looked to me like a huge statue in a green military coat. And she said to my mother in Russian, my mother knew some Russian by then, what are you doing out? You're going to get arrested. And she noticed that my mother was pregnant. And she took pity on her. And she said, come into my guardhouse, a teeny little guardhouse. She said, I have to stand on guard duty. You come in here with your child and lie down. So my mother put me to sleep. And I still remember the the roughness of the military blanket on my face when my mother covered me up and I fell asleep and my mother went into labor. Oh my goodness. And she had nowhere to go. And somehow or other, this guard helped her get to a homeless shelter for Jewish refugees. And that's my, where my brother was born. Now, miraculously, uh, time and experience, um, makes a difference in, in one's life trajectory because my brother is now one of the most famous architects in the world, but he had a very rough start in life. Yeah, but geez, and you're so young and you remember this with such clarity. I do because it was, 
you know, I think you remember the things that are very impactful in your life that are traumatic. So, yes. And and speaking of uncorking a story, I uncorked my story yesterday in my brother's studio. He hosted my book launch, Studio Liebeskind. My brother is the master planner for Rebuilding Ground Zero and many notable museums around the world. So he hosted the launch event at his studio. It was fabulous. That's a very proper place. I have to know, though, your, your father and, and the salt, whatever became of the salt, did it have value? It well, what turned out this, I'm glad you asked because nobody asked me the, the, uh, that part of the story. Uh, my father was very upset that he put my mother in her ninth month with a child to go to an unknown place. He was very, very anxious that he did that. And of course, my mother gave birth without him being present, which I think she never forgave him. But he could not get that sack of salt on any train. So he left it at the train station and came the next day. So You know what I'm wondering, though? Uh, and there, there's, of course, no way of knowing. But if if he had left the salt and went with you and you and you wound up, you know, at, at that guardhouse with you know if if that woman that soldier would have taken as much pity on you and your mother as she did if your father had been with you probably not probably not because you know you see a a pregnant very pregnant woman out at night with a little child you're more likely to to have compassion yeah Yeah. so so that that probably worked out the way it should have worked out in an alternative you know you never know i don't know these are questions we can't answer, but we can only hypothesize. Um, well, tell me about uh, about aftermath. Um, I know you've written some other you know memoir before, but um, tell me what what can you share with me about about this book? Well, aftermath is the story of of my growing up and my interest in writing the story. I apologize if you hear noise. There's construction in my building. I can't it's, do it. It's New York City. It. What, what are you going to do? Uh, my intent in writing the story was to show that even children who are growing up with, with um, the shadow of the Holocaust uh, can grow up to be successful human beings, that your past doesn't need to be your destiny. Um, when I was growing up, uh, I felt I was growing up in a normal childhood, but in retrospect, I know that I wasn't because we had no family. So every birthday, every holiday was celebrated with myself, my brother, and my parents. We were a very close nuclear family, but it was just us. There was never anybody else around us, which, which was very difficult. And we spent many weekends, not all weekends, but I would say maybe most weekends in Poland, my father would take us to the cemetery to clean up my grandparents' graves. His parents died before the war. And he always told us, and we were young kids, how lucky they were that they died before the war. And it was hard for me to understand as a child, how was it lucky to die? But he also always took us uh, to the wall in the cemetery where they shot the ghetto uh, prisoners. Um, so that, that, that was the context of growing up. And the post-war Poland under communism, uh, 
uh, aside from the you know the burden of the Holocaust was was a very grim place. It was a very gray place. And it's it's interesting when I think about it. I don't see the images in color. Everything seems gray. Mm. Things are gray. The flowers are gray. I don't. I don't. It, it, and it's probably colored by my experience. My experience there wasn't happy, even though at the time I was living it, I don't think I was unhappy girl growing up. But then we came to Israel as soon as my parents were able to get out, uh, which was very difficult because uh, you needed to get uh, exit visas. Uh, my grandkids often ask me, why didn't they just leave? Well, I tell them you couldn't just leave. You needed permission to leave. And several times the Polish government issued uh, exit visas and revoked them when everything was gotten rid of, packed, and you had to start over again. So I think it was the fourth or maybe the fifth time where they got the permits to leave. I remember these gigantic wooden crates appearing in our living room because uh, we, we only had two rooms. It was a very modest place, a, a, a living room and a bedroom. The living room was filled with a giant wooden crate into which my parents just threw everything in. Uh, and any money that they had left over, they bought things like bicycles and they bicycles and linens and you name it. Everything went into that crate. The crate was sealed and we were gone. And it, it was it was so dramatic for me because one day I was living, uh, you know, life as a sixth grader and next day we were on a train uh heading towards uh italy because we changed we 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 boarded a ship in in naples and my parents had very very few possessions but my mother had her gold ring she had a gold necklace uh and she was afraid that those would be taken away so she sewed them into the hem of my coat uh, and and I was warned many times, you know, don't don't call attention to this because the guards will come on the train. They will ask for our identity papers. Don't don't fidget with your coat. Don't you know? And I was I was terrified. Yeah, because nothing happened, but it was just. And and then after this whole experience, we arrive in Israel, because the weather is so different skies were brilliantly blue and the water i had never been near an ocean so when we saw the mediterranean it was like it, it was something so extraordinary and then when the ship pulled into the harbor and they pulled up the plank there was all this family running up my my uh, mother's brother who was an auschwitz survivor who survived as a teenager and somehow got to Israel for it was Palestine when he got there, uh, and and his whole family they they were they were all coming to greet us. My mother had two sisters who had um, gone to settle Palestine years before. That's how they survived. So suddenly there was family, all these people around us. It was overwhelming. And um, my mother had a sister who was a, uh, one of the founders of a kibbutz 
in um, Israel in the Galilee. And we went there and cedar trees and the, everything was so different. There was nothing familiar there. Yeah. And not to speak of the language. I mean, there couldn't be two more different languages in Polish and Hebrew. Well, it just looking back on her childhood, um, when when do you start seeing in color if if Poland was black and white? Is yeah. is this a period of time that you're reimagining or you're kind of reliving in color, or or did that happen at Absolutely. a different point? Yeah. No, like it happened, it happened there. It's I started um, uh, seeing colors uh, when we came to Israel, but then you know you learn the language and as i said the two languages couldn't be more different the characters are different the sounds are different um uh for people who uh don't know hebrew they don't realize that hebrew is written without vowels uh so it's it's very difficult to read uh when you when you're learning it some they have dots that signify the vowels below the words when you're learning it but once you've learned it Adult texts don't have uh, indications for the vowels. You're just supposed to know the words. Uh, so, uh, so I learned the language. I, I, I get used to it, uh, and boom, another bomb is thrown into my life. My father says I'm leaving. For my for my father, Israel was a very big disappointment. Mm -hmm. Why? A lot of people are very, very surprised by that. And I'll tell you why. Because in Poland, my father uh, was very reluctant to speak his language. He grew up with Yiddish. Yiddish was his mother tongue. And he couldn't wait to go to a country with our Jews where he could speak Yiddish. And the minute he opened his mouth in Yiddish in Israel, it was anathema. Don't speak that language because they were building a new country uh, with a language that had been reserved only for um, religious texts. And now it was being used for everyday language. So they wanted everyone to speak Hebrew. My father didn't know any Hebrew. So he had no way to communicate. Yeah, It was extremely frustrating to him. And, but it was also, it was more than frustrating. It was insulting that he felt a Jew and a Jewish country couldn't speak his language. It was very offensive and he couldn't get a job. Why? He was 47 or 48. He was really too old to get a job. Israel was a young country. They wanted young people to build the country. And he could, I mean, in Poland, he had been administrator uh, to uh, have any administrative jobs, you need the language. He didn't have the language and he was on the old side, so he couldn't work. And he had worked all his life. For him, not, not working was so demoralizing. And then he found his uh, sister, the one sister that, uh, from his large family that survived Auschwitz in Pennsylvania in the US. And she said, come here. I will, you will get a house and you will have a job and you will have a great life. You've got to come. So she started uh, trying to influence uh, a, both a Republican and a Democratic senator from her state. She tried from both sides. And uh, he got called in by the American embassy in Tel Aviv. He was, he was astounded. 
he came in and he got called in for an interview. And the interviewer said to him, how, how did you get all this political influence in the US? And he had no idea because he didn't know what she had done. So he didn't know what they were talking about. He was very nervous. And they said, well, we have a letter here from this senator and a letter from that senator. We're going to issue an ex a visa for you. So my father was thrilled, but guess what? The thrill didn't last long because mm. he thought the visa was for the whole family. It was just for him. So he had to leave me and my brother and my mother behind. And at the time we had no idea if or when we would ever see him again because we didn't know if he could get another visa. So for me, it was an extremely difficult time because A, I did not want to leave Israel. I had no desire whatsoever. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid growing up in Poland, America was painted as such a devil by the communist government. It was a place I did not want to go. The only thing that was here, it was my father. I was very close with my father. So I was very, very torn because my mother had a business in Israel. She had her sister, she had family. She was happy and suddenly we were torn out by our roots. And there I am arriving in New York as a 16 year old, two weeks before school starts, not speaking a word of English, terrified about how am I gonna go to school? You know, teen with all, all the normal angst of a teen. And then you, you can't speak the language and, and, and you're supposed to enter 10th grade. So the, the, the story of how I ended up going to the Bronx High School of Science, I don't know how much you know about the school, but in, in 1959, when I entered the school, it was then considered the best uh, public high school in America. And getting into it was uh, very, very difficult. Uh, huge numbers of students took the test. They admitted very few. And, and you had to take an admission, an entrance test. Well, it turned out, I found out many years later that I'm the only student who has ever attended that school without taking the entrance test. I was going to say, how could you even take the test if you couldn't read or write or speak English? Well, I couldn't. I, uh, I, I don't really want to divulge the, the story because it's uh, described in fine detail in my book. But I managed to persuade the principal. I, I I need to pause here for a moment, just reflect on a few things that you've been talking about. So I, you know, you mentioned your father's age, 47, 48. And I'm thinking to myself, that's, I, I just turned 48 a couple of weeks ago. And I'm thinking about, um, well, a few things, our lives were very different, my, my life and your father's, but your father had left his family twice, you know, the first to escape Hitler, only to, you know, go into a gulag um, and then work his way, work his way back. And then he leaves his family again, Israel to the Pennsylvania. Now, I mean, if, if I had to choose any state in this country in it, I don't know that I would have ch chosen Pennsylvania, but that's, you know, I guess beggars can't be choosers. Um, no, no offense to Pennsylvania, but, um, <laughs> and then, and then you, I mean, you, um, and then, you know, your life is, uh, is, is not easy either. Right. I mean, cause you're, you're, you know, you're, you're moving around so much and you're finally somewhere, where you love, you know, you're seeing in color now. You've got your your mother, her sister, your brother. Um, you're learning the language, and then you uproot again to go to the United States, this place that has been, 
you know, a lot of propaganda has been fed to you about what it's really like. I'm curious, were you surprised at all when you came to the United States that that it may not have been what what you you'd been told? Okay, you know, so coming? I'll tell you, uh, I have a story that that responds to your question, which is described in the book, but I'll give you the short version of it. On the very first day, when we arrived, um, uh, we went to uh, an apartment that my father had rented for the family. It was a sublet in the Bronx on the fifth floor walk up. Uh, it was, I think, an old lady that had gone to a nursing home and her family sublet her apartment. So. Uh, her closets were stuffed with her coats and mothballs. So I remember the smell of mothballs first coming into the apartment. The drawers were filled with her underwear. It was, you know, we were living in somebody else's home, essentially. And I woke, that that was the first impression of when we walked in there. And um, I said to my father, are we, are we, are we going to live here? And he said, well, yes, until I find another place. And I said, when will that be? And he said, we'll see. And we had lived in a sublet apartment in Israel. So I was not happy. Uh, I, I wanted us to have a place of our own again, like we had in Poland. So the next morning when I woke up, there was a big courtyard in the building. And I said, I, I want to see this America. I'm here. I, I, I'm, I feel completely alien and uprooted. I'll just go downstairs. So I went down the five flights of stairs. And in the courtyard, I saw a girl who seemed to be to be more or less my age, or at least I judge her to be my age. And she started talking to me, of course, and I was gesticulating, uh, trying to say, I... I don't, I don't understand. And I think pretty quickly she got the idea that that I was not an English speaker. And I, I know this woman till today, this was like more than 60 years ago, but this is what happened. She grabbed my hand and she said something, which was, come, come with me. And this was in the Bronx. So we, I walked with her and I was sort of agog at everything. And we came to a street where I was able to read the sign. It said Broadway. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing there's all these car dealerships. Well, I didn't know they were car dealerships because I'd never seen one, but I saw lots of cars and, and a subway overhead. And I'm thinking from what I've heard about New York, Broadway lights. Uh, what is this? This is this. I've been I've been duped. This is not what Broadway is supposed to be. So we cross the street across Broadway and she drags me into a Woolworth store. And I had never been in a department store, never seen one in Israel, never, there, were, there were none in Poland at the time. And, and I'm looking at a store that's got things as varied as, I don't know, linens and pots and school supplies. And I'm just totally incredulous. And then she drags me over to these tall stools covered in red. It's a counter. And she orders a Coca-Cola. Now, what I read about Coca-Cola in Poland in the 50s, I thought it was a drug. So I'm sitting here, I'm thinking to myself, I'm sitting here on Broadway drinking Coca-Cola. 
I feel like I'm in a dream. So <laughs> that blew my mind on day one. I could imagine that being uh, overwhelming. Now, did your mother, did your mother come? Did she leave Israel? Yes. She, yes. Okay. Yeah. We came together. Yeah, it, was, together. it was very hard for my mother. Yeah. She, it was, my, my parents were a wonderful couple. They loved each other very much, but my father's leaving it could have, it could have meant the breakup of a marriage. But in the final analysis, my mother said, "No, I have, I, I will come." Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't easy for her. And she, yeah, and then and then I mean, she could hold that over him, just like, uh, you know, not being there when your brother was born. <laughs> yes, that 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 one that was the worst. <laughs> I think that was her, that was his worst crime. <laughs> <laughs> um. So kind of writing this book, um, and I know it's not it's not your first book, nor is it your first memoir, but um, did you uncover anything unique about yourself during the writing process for this? Anything? Did you learn anything new about yourself? I did, you know, and it wasn't it wasn't just the writing process itself. It's when my manuscript went out to advanced reviewers because my publisher wanted it to go out to advanced reviews. I got a lot of advanced reviews that say that said, you carried such a heavy burden as a child. And I didn't quite realize that. I didn't quite realize that. It, it, it hit me only recently, really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I know, um, I, you know, I talked to a lot of authors and, and one insight that I've learned um, is that, you know, writing, whether or not we realize it when we're doing it, but writing can be a form of therapy. Um, and it sounds like it may have been in your case as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've, I've experienced that sense of uh, therapy in writing and writing my um, poetry book. Uh, I published a poetry book called Erythra Thalassa, brain disrupted now erythrothalassa stands for the red sea in greek and the reason i titled the book that way because it it was the image that i had when my son who was uh, uh 46 at the time had a hemorrhagic stroke and his brain was flooded with blood oh my gosh and i was so heartbroken over it and he, he is thankfully alive with us but he is severely disabled and and it was a trauma of a different kind, uh, uh, a mother watching a son uh, so devastated uh, that I, that it it moved me to to and to write and to heal myself with poetry. And I put that book out, and a lot of people that have had family members in pain or injured or suffering in some way as a result of a particularly a child. Um, suffering, uh, they relate. They relate to this uh, poetry book, and it was healing for me. Yeah, wow! Thank you for sharing that. Um, I mean, there is, you know, a lot of weight, and I would imagine, you know, a lot of children of survivors um, of the Holocaust bear a lot of weight. Um, you know, from that, I imagine, um, you know, there's there are stories you hear. Um, just the way you were you you were brought up, um, and and of course you know I'm 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 deep going into my 
my old Freudian head here because I was a student of that. Um, you know, Carl Jung talks about the collective unconscious and and how uh, groups of people and and um, sort of share with share a common background and that that sort of we inherit that. Um, is that true for you? I mean, do you do you feel like you you bear bear some of that weight? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, I I learned from my father especially about the responsibility of, of passing on the collective history. Uh, so uh, I've written my, my first memoir. I was really writing about his survival and how, as, as a subsequent generation, I had a different take on various issues uh, related to um, Poland and to the extermination of the Jews and so forth. Uh, I was very reluctant to go back to Poland, but my father wanted to go back. A lot of people don't want to. So uh, it, it was a very interesting uh, contrast for me that I wanted to examine in, in the book. So uh, I wrote that one, but, um, you know, he populated my entire childhood with, with people uh, that that were murdered, not just his family, but his friends and his teachers, and 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 I just feel a responsibility to pass it on. And recently, my daughter, who is yet a third generation, uh, wrote a story um, about the impact of anti-Semitism that uh, she just had published in the Jewish Writing Project. So that. That history, as you say, it gets passed down the generations. Yeah. And and when it doesn't, it's it's a real problem. You know, I had my book launch yesterday, and and one of the participants approached me and said, I'm so glad to read your book because my parents didn't tell me anything about their background. And I'm hoping that by reading your story, I will learn a little bit of mine. And it it made me very sad for that woman. Yeah, I mean, who knows what their motivations may have been, but um, I have to, I have to ask because something is catching my eye on your windowsill. What yeah. is, um, what is that, that green, um, what's that green thing on your windowsill? Which I'll point, I'll stand up and I'll point. Okay, you're getting warmer. No, a little it, bit over. To, there, that green thing. Yeah, what is that? Okay, I will tell you. It's actually, he appears as a character in my next story, my next book. I'm writing a magical realism book. Okay. This is a Chinese figure. I traveled a lot to China yeah. My uh, for my work. Uh, I worked in wildlife conservation for 34 years. And when I saw these, these uh, there was a pair of guardians. Uh, uh, through, I have to show you both because then the story won't make sense. Okay. Okay. Uh, most people look at them and think they're the same. Do you see the difference? One's got an open mouth, one's got a closed okay. mouth. Yeah. Well, I asked the question of the, this was in an antique, uh, it was an antique fair in Shanghai. And I said, why? why? And they were sold as a pair. And I said, well, why is one's mouth open and one's not? He said, the one that has the mouth open is the female because she talks all the time. And the other one is the male. 
And I said, oh, you chauvinist, I'm going <laughs> to buy them. <laughs> I'm going to buy them and display them <laughs> to remember always <laughs> that chauvinism can, can, can carry through art. <laughs> you know, I, I'm glad I asked you to show me that. My, um, my grandmother, uh, if we took a trip back in time 40 years to Pompano Beach, Florida, my grandmother's best friend was a woman named Gloria Tanner. She lived right above us. So we were in 1002. She was 1102. You walk into Gloria's apartment. She has those two statues right as you walk in. And my twin brother and I named them. We named one Constantinople. I can't remember what we named it. I'd have to ask my brother. But we named them. She had the same two statues, mm -hmm. um, those two guardians in, in her apartment. She used to live in Singapore. So she had a lot of um, that type of art in her place. But wow, that's a that's a small world situation. Greek in Asia, yes. <laughs> if you looked closely, they probably one had their, its mouth closed and one open. I, You know what? I wish I could, but she has left us. <laughs> uh, see so, if your brother remembers. Yeah, I will. I will ask uh, I will ask Jimmy if he remembers that. Um, well, <laughs> so congratulations on the launch of uh, launch of the book. Um, and then where can people buy Aftermath Coming of Age on Three Continents? It's available on Amazon, and then you could be requested at any bookstore. Oh. Uh, Amazon has a Kindle edition, a paperback edition, and a hardcover. I don't know if you've seen it here. Oh, there it is. Beautiful book cover. There it is. Yes, and I have to say something about the book cover, Mike, because I didn't Please. get a chance to say it. First of all, it was designed by my niece, who is an artist, Rachel Liebeskin, she is my brother's uh, daughter, inherited his talent in art. But these colors, colors around here, they're really um, kind of a summary of my feelings about the various places where I've lived. So the first is the red. I, I started off by telling you about the uh, vast poppy fields in, in Kyrgyzstan but it's also the red of the flags. They signify various events in my life. Then there's the blue, the Mediterranean. Mm. Okay. And there's the green, the green of the Statue of Liberty. And also it's green because other immigrants, uh, Jewish immigrants, uh, called us greener. Greener meaning greens. We were green because we were, we didn't know the language. We didn't know anything. Okay, they, it, it was a kind of a slur uh, against newcomers uh, because when I came to the U.S., I didn't come with a wave of immigrants. We were just like one family. There were very few immigrants that year, actually. Um, so we were kind of uh, an oddity among um, the group of Jewish people that we knew in New York, and they called us the Greens. So. Mm -hmm. Another reason for the green. Uh, uh, people who read the book will, will get a sense, a deeper sense of why, why these colors are there and, and what they represent. But uh, I, I hope uh, that your listeners will know that this is a book about what happened after the Holocaust. It's not about the Holocaust. It's about how it affected me growing up. But at... Uh, the very core of it, it's an optimistic book because I'm an optimistic person and my life has turned out very well. So for anyone else uh, listening who's interested, how, how did you get into the Bronx High School of Science? How'd you do it? 
have to read the book. Oh, <laughs> After fair enough. That's worth the price of the book right there. You know, I have to tell you, this is a very funny story. I got an email from someone, I don't know, a woman who said, I'm the granddaughter of the former principal of the Bronx High School of Science, Dr. Morris Meister. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know you. I don't know him. I know he was a principal, but he had retired the year that when I started with, was a brand new principal. And she said, well, my grandmother and my mother told me a story. They knew about the girl who went into Bronx High School of Science not knowing a word of English. Is that you? And I said, I'm afraid it is. So I invited her to my book launch. and She was just very excited to meet me. <laughs> well, you're a legend. You are a legend. Uh, uh, and if, <laughs> if any of our listeners want to uh, you know, learn a little bit more about you, Annette. Is there a website? Are you on social media? What can you share with our listeners? Yes, uh, I do have a website. It's my name, Annette Berkovitz, B-E-R-K-O-V-I-T-S.com, AnnetteBerkovitz.com. Uh, there's everything about my, about my books on my website and uh, a blog and all sorts of things. And I, I have a Facebook uh, author page. Uh, I don't uh, do Twitter and Instagram very frequently, but I'm there sometimes. Okay. No TikTok for you? No, I have to. My grandson has to teach me. <laughs> I, I, I learned these technologies from my grandkids. Yeah. But, yeah. Very good. Annette, thank you so much for letting me uncork your story. I, I had a good time. Thank you, Mike. You're a very good interviewer. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.